Amen. Thank you, Cindy. <clears throat> and good morning again and welcome uh, in the name of Christ. All right, we're going to go back through a little song history here. Uh, depending on your generation, you, maybe one of these will resonate with you. Uh, going back a, a, a little ways, uh, don't worry, be happy. Y'all remember Bobby McFerrin, a little, little Rasta kind of thing going on, just seeing, you know, the message there, just kind of shake it off, put a smile on your face. Don't worry, be happy, right? Chill out. Uh, kind of a Bob Marley-esque uh, way of being in the world. All right, so we got that one. How many of you were Nirvana fans in the 90s? Uh, I'm so happy because today I found my friend. You know, that's a simple one. Uh, none of you are going to admit if you're Nirvana fans, uh, but maybe I just I just know that from other people who are Nirvana fans, okay? And then the one that's more recent that really, you know, is a great, a great little song about happiness. Uh, because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. And clap along if you feel like that's what you're going to do. Right? All nice, positive songs about happiness. Okay? Thomas Aquinas said in the Middle Ages that happiness is the object of every person's desire. Every human being that's ever been born the object of our desire, the core object of our desire is happiness. We were created by a God who is happy, I dare say, and he created us for the capacity and the desire to be happy. Now, we tend to get derailed on the journey of happiness um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, life is hard. Happiness doesn't translate the way we thought it would. And in every society and every generation, there's some version of happiness that looks like this. If I have enough goods and physical needs, I'll be happy. If I can possess others in a way that I have enough power over others to where I can kind of control things, I'll be happy. If nothing bad ever happens to me, I'll be happy. And if I can be autonomous, this is my favorite, then I'll be happy, right? If I can just shake off all the encumbrances of everybody else, if I can be my own person in my own world and don't have to deal with any of, not just y'all, but, you know, anybody, uh, then I'll be happy, right? So that gets translated a variety of ways. But you look through society and all the, the great stories and the epics and Homer and all the stuff, like when we seek happiness this way, uh, we end up, kind of a dead end. That search for happiness by going with those methods has left us feeling abandoned and frustrated and sidetracked and like we just need to work a little harder and cheer up a little bit more and just doggone it be a little happier. Right? Because life has not turned out for any of us the way that we hoped it would, at least on some level. None of us can say this is exactly how I hope things would go. The good news today in the gospel of Jesus Christ is it is the nature of God to meet us in our confused and abandoned places, to call us back home, to meet us at the very center of the crises we experience and invite us to consider happiness again, to not give up on the hope and the desire for happiness 
but this time to approach it God's way. We're going to be in a short series here on what we have come to know in Christianity as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, and Cindy read them so well for us in Matthew chapter 5. They come from the word beatus, which is the Latin word for blessed or happy. So beatus, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, happy are those who. And so the series I'm calling Harvesting Happiness because there's a sense in which there's work for us to do to be happy. Now, it goes along these lines that Christ has laid out for us, but there's, there's gleaning work. There's harvesting work. We're like those who in the Jubilee laws of the Old Testament, there's a little wheat left in the field for us, no matter who we are, and we, just, we sometimes have to go out and find it and go out and get it. There's provision for us in the fields and the edges of the fields and the highways and byways, and sometimes we just do a little detective work and get out there and find it. There's a moral theologian called Servius Pinkers, and uh, he has a great quote on the Beatitudes I want to share with you today and just kind of commend to you. It's kind of governing a lot of my thoughts on the Beatitudes this time. But he says, the Beatitudes are promises of what can be accomplished in us. The Beatitudes are promises of what can be accomplished in us. They're, they're promises. They're things to be lived into. They're things to be wrestled with and wondered about. And he says in another place that the Beatitudes are how we repent. Remember last week we talked about Jesus coming saying, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so his way of reading this is saying the way that we repent is by living the Beatitudes. By learning and living these promises, we live a life of repentance. Remember, repentance has a sense in which it's moving forward and living into something. So we repent by recognizing the kingdom of heaven is at hand and by living these Beatitudes. Now, I think there's something so simple and beautiful in the Beatitudes that probably children in many ways understand better than we do when we share and translate them. So one of the things I'm going to try to do in these next couple of weeks is just learn the Beatitudes in a more kind of carry-in-your-pocket sort of way, uh, just to where I can say them to myself throughout the day and remember them, uh, where they can live a little more closely to my immediate recall. So I've just been kind of going through, we're going to look at the first three today, uh, but I've just been working those over in my mind and trying to memorize them. And I want to, in this season, share them with my kids and, you know, just have them places where they can pick them up and take them with them. So uh, it's something simple to meditate on, to remember. And for centuries, Christians have learned these just like we would learn the fruits of the Spirit or the Ten Commandments as something to hold on to. Because the Beatitudes in context um, are found in the Sermon on the Mount. They're kind of the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. So what Jesus is going to tell us in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel, he tells us in summary form in those few verses that were read for us earlier that our scripture reading today. A preamble, a summary form. And it's incredible to think about how God speaks to us and how he works and why it's so important to have that Old Testament recall uh, kind of ready as we read the New Testament. Because remember when Moses was giving the law and he was giving a summary of the law and there was something at the beginning and something at the end that kind of bookended the law. If you read back in Deuteronomy, there's whole chapters full of 
If you do these things, you will be blessed. You'll be happy. If you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you do not do these things, you will be cursed. So we know them as the blessings and the curses that accompany the giving of the law. And it's incredible, though, because you think about in those blessings and curses, God was forming a people in a land that they did not previously possess. So they needed things. They needed to have stuff to be able to have land and do things and live in a certain way that God's people could grow and flourish and multiply and do all that stuff. But for so for the Jewish imagination reading those, um, you were blessed if you if you were right with God. It meant you know you didn't get sick, you you had lots of children, you everything worked out for you, you had lots of land, everything was good. And if you saw people who didn't have those things, people back then just assumed, oh, they must not be right with God, right? Something's off. And so what's the first thing Jesus says when he sits down? He says, "All right, guys, listen." Now I'm going to tell you a new series of blessings here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What? Blessed are the poor? Wait a second. But you told us way back there you know, that, that if we were blessed, like we wouldn't be poor. Blessed are those who mourn. What? Blessed are those who mourn? You told us if we were right with God, then things would go well for us in the land. And like we wouldn't have stuff to mourn about. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. What are you talking about? So Jesus is, in this little preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, he is flipping the whole understanding of the law on its head and saying, people that you thought maybe previously cursed, guess what? They're blessed. It's very shocking and very challenging and very encouraging and beautiful all at the same time. Now, the Sermon on the Mount always comes with challenges as we read it because you read the Sermon on the Mount and it's like, it's like kind of a, it's kind of like a, it's like the haymaker, uh, in a fight. I mean, it's the one that really sets you down. Uh, but it's got in summary form so much of what Christ wants us to live out. But you read through there and it's like, oh my goodness, this looks hard. This is tough. This is not easy. But Christians have always valued the Sermon on the Mount very highly and very prominently in our understanding of how to live in the world. Uh, John Wesley thought the Sermon on the Mount was so important and the early Methodists that when he published his 52 standard sermons, these are the ones that they would circulate in the churches and say, no matter what else you preach, make sure you preach this stuff, right? Grace, prevenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace, uh, that God is, you can't be saved by your works and putting all that good stuff out there. Guess how many of the 52 were from the Sermon on the Mount? 13, which is 25%. So Wesley thought that much of the Sermon on the Mount. And before him, Luther and Calvin and all these folks thought, you know, the Sermon on the Mount really is where it's at when we try to put our boots on the ground where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. So that's the harvesting work that we're about as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. But now there have always been objections as well about the Sermon on the Mount because people look at it and they go, man, that's hard. So maybe it's a little too hard. So I'm going to give you a couple of objections to reading the Sermon on the Mount as a hopeful way of actually leading to happiness. The first one that you hear, and you still hear them today, people read the Sermon on the Mount and they say, that's really nice. That's probably for those elite Christians, right? Those really spiritual people. It's like the, the Navy SEALs of Christianity. People think, oh, oh yeah, that's great. But that's for those people that work out all the time and they just, they just, everything goes well. You know, they just, they're the Navy SEALs. Uh, they're, they're real smart and they read all the time or whatever it is, right? They never do anything wrong or, oh, that's, that's for those people, that Sermon on the Mount. Leave me the rest of the stuff. 
That's Sermon on the Mount for those people, those elite people. Uh, the other thing you'll hear so, sometimes people have said over the years as well, that's really hard teaching, but hey, think about it. The disciples, they had Jesus right there with them. And so from the time that Jesus was teaching and preaching till the time that he died, there was this special moment in history. And that's when we were supposed to obey the Sermon on the Mount. After that, it's just, you know, just suggestions. Another one is, you know, this is really impossible. We all know it's impossible because nobody's perfect and yada, yada, yada. Uh, but it's something nice to aspire to. And anyone who's ever tried to teach morality or teach children in any way knows that if you approach it like that, like it's impossible, but you ought to try anyways, it takes all the sap out of your ethics. It yanks it away. If it's not really possible, no one will aspire to it. The last objection, which we still hear today, is that the Sermon on the Mount was just given to us. It was just Jesus' way of reminding us how awful and sinful we were, that we just couldn't get it done. And so let's just ask for forgiveness and let's just reckon with the fact that we'll never amount to anything, but at least we have forgiveness. Thanks be to God, right? So I'm going to argue with a majority of Christians throughout the ages that the commandments and the vision and the Sermon on the Mount are possible to live in this life. They really are possible or else... I don't think we would spend time wrestling with them and working with them. The whole law has always been for the whole people of God, not just for a select few. Jesus goes on later in Matthew 5 to say, you are a city on a hill, right? You're, you're the light of the world. He's referring directly to Jerusalem and Israel that it was about all God's people. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount and somebody tries to tell you it's just for the elite few or something, just tell them, then why at the end does it say everyone who puts these things into practice will be like the person that built their house on the rock. And everyone who doesn't put these into practice, building on sand. Right? It'll be a big mess. So we have this hope of living in a certain way that we can build on a strong foundation, on a rock. The whole law for the whole people of God. We are a city on a hill in search of happiness. We're a light of the world. And we're struggling along. All right. I want to take what time we have left and go through these Beatitudes one at a time. So we're going to do three this week, two next week, and then uh, the rest the following week. And so the first one that we come to in the Beatitudes are, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this one and the others we'll look at today are direct allusions to Isaiah 61. Remember when Jesus uh, quotes this in, in Luke 4 when he begins his ministry. But here's what Isaiah says in chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. So you see this language in the Bible all the time, you know, essentially blessed are the poor. Uh, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. I've come to preach good news to the poor. And so we start asking ourselves, okay, like, who are the poor? And uh, does that mean if we're not poor, we don't see ourselves as poor, then are we not blessed? Did Jesus not come for us? Or how does that work? And so it's good to remember that in the Bible, when you see the word rich, so like you read the Psalms and it's like, down with the rich. <laughs> it's not just people that have money, okay? Of course, rich refers to people with wealth, but rich refers to those of us who have wealth and we have 
attached a great level of pride to that wealth. But we've taken that wealth and we thought, you know, because I have this, I'm superior to others. I can live in a certain way. I'm exempt from this. I'm exempt from that. And thank goodness I'm not like those lousy people because I have X, Y, and Z. Rich refers to people with power who abuse their power. So rich is very multifaceted. There's a lot of variety to it. Rich actually refers to people who see themselves, see ourselves as self-sufficient. We don't need anything. And therefore, when you see rich, usually in the Bible, it's people who don't want anything to do with God. They've said, you know what? I have what I need. I've gotten what I need. And by the way, I was, I did it all by myself. So I don't need help from anybody. Most certainly don't need help from God. That's usually the disposition that you see from the rich in scripture. So when you see rich, that's usually what it's referring to. Now, what about the poor? All right. The poor are those in scripture and those in life. Uh, and, and God always, there was always a special place for those who had a rough time in God's heart, right? Those who are, the poor are those who are used to bad treatment. They're used to scorn. And so they tend to have a strong sense of their need for God. Uh, the poor refers to people who are humble, who uh, humble themselves before God and say, God, everything that I have comes from you and I, I, I give it all back to you. That's, that's a poor, that's a poverty disposition. Uh, poor also refers to littleness. Remember when Jesus says, unless you become like the little children, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you become like little kids. That's a pathway of poverty in the biblical sense of poor. Now, in addition to that understanding where rich tends to be more prideful and poor tends to be more humble, there are, we, we, of course we see that there are legitimate poor among us, in our communities, in our lives. Some of us know what it's like to have lived in this way. We're a part of a long cycle uh, where we didn't have safety nets. And because of that, we bad decisions were made and we missed out on things and all that stuff. So we can make that list where poverty is pervasive and should never be romanticized. Uh, forms of poverty include everything from being sick, right? Being ill is a, is a form of poverty because it takes us out of that normal flow of life. It, it puts us in places we didn't plan on being. We're stripped away of some of our capacities. Uh, another form of poverty is the lack of affection. We see this in children and adults who did not have uh, substantial affection, and so they behave in a way that the world's out to get them, that there's no safe place to be in the world. Um, age can be a form of poverty, right? We can be at a certain age where, depending on what society we live in, we're looked down upon or we're seen as disposable, whether we're children or middle-aged or elderly. Uh, every society tends to have stigmas about people who are a certain age and where they fit in the grand scheme of things. Poverty, a form of poverty can be an uncertainty about the future. People that have no idea what's coming tomorrow, that have no way to plan for what's next, they tend to be despairing about the future and therefore live in such a way that can be reckless or irresponsible in the present. And another form of poverty, of course, is the one that we do bring upon ourselves, the errors that we make, the sins that we commit, the things that we harbor inside of us, the bitterness, the stuff that eats away at us, that puts us in a bind. Again, Servius Pincaris says that all poverty stems from the primordial poverty that we all experience, from knowing that we did not make ourselves, that what we have is a gift, and one day, it will all be gone. 
There's liminality to life. And we experience that kind of poverty. So in each one of these Beatitudes today, I want to just, I want to look at three subjects, three categories. All right. And the first one is just, it seems to me that every Beatitude contains an affirmation. Every Beatitude contains an affirmation. It says, these are people who are blessed. When you see these people, mark them as blessed. Just assume that they're blessed. The, the other thing that I think is contained in every Beatitude is an invitation. An invitation for us to enter into that blessed way. And then finally, I want to talk about how each of these Beatitudes we see in the life of Christ. And there are many ways that we see that, and I'll just list a few examples. So for the poor in spirit, the blessed are the poor in spirit, I think the affirmation that we have to stand together and say is that God has not forgotten about those who have been banged up in this life. He simply has not. And when it seems like he has, we're probably not seeing the whole story and we've certainly not remembered that Christ will return one day to judge the living and the dead. Christ has not forgotten about those who are in the long chain cycles of hunger and not having enough in this life. Christ has not forgotten about them, and so Christ's people have been called not to forget about them. And so that's part of the invitation, I think, for all of us, is to become poor in some way, to become humble, right? To become poor in spirit, to befriend the poor, to visit someone in poverty, to be a part of the blessing of the kingdom of heaven that they would experience. And remember all those forms of poverty. There may be someone who's in a very vulnerable age that you know, someone who's in a very vulnerable time of their life that you know, and you can enter into that poverty with them. And by doing so, you will mark them as blessed. You will give them by giving them yourself the kingdom of heaven. So it's an invitation for us to become humble, to become poor. Remember Jesus, um, when at one point he said in his teaching and in his ministry, he said, hey, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm essentially homeless in this life. I mean, foxes have a place to live. Birds have a place to live. I'm the Son of God and I don't have a place to live. There is a poverty there, a liminality that Jesus chose out of love for us so that he could perfectly identify with this group of people that he's calling blessed. Remember Matthew 25, the parable about those when, when the disciples say, you know, gosh, Jesus, we, we didn't we didn't ever uh, see you in prison. We didn't ever see you sick. We didn't ever see you. We didn't do all these things to you. And Jesus says, no, I'll tell you the truth that anything you did for the least of these, you have actually done for me. Jesus, again, identifying with those who are stuck. And finally, Jesus embraces humility in his life and teaching uh, the entire time. <laughs> Remember, his whole message can kind of be summed up as, you know, you got to take up your cross. You got to follow after me. Anyone who wishes to save their life will lose it. And anyone who loses their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. And that's, that's Jesus' big roundhouse kick. You know, you, you, you want to save your life, you've got to lose your life. It's upside down. Humility. All right, the second beatitude that we're looking at today. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, depending on what translation you're reading, uh, meek might be second or it might be third. You might have mourn first. Uh, the Greek manuscripts differ. And so when we translate the Bible into English, uh, it can go either way. 
I've chosen to do meek second because I want to finish with mourning. But um, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I don't know what your associations and connotations are with the word meek. But when I think meek, I think of, there's really not a polite way to say this. Um, there probably is. Uh, maybe I won't say anything. But when you think of a meek person, right, it's like a, if you're a guy, it's like a big sissy, you know. And if, and if you're a woman, it's like you're a doormat. That's, that's what we think of as meek. Like, oh, she's just so meek and mild. And, oh, he's such a meek guy. Like, that's co-language for, like, you can't trust him at all. Uh, you can't depend on him at all. He's a big sissy. Okay. <clears throat> so, anyways, that's culture's image of what the word meek means. And so, uh, I think that that's very off of what Jesus is saying here about the meek. So, the affirmation that I'd like to hold up about those who are meek is that, um, those who have, those, the ones that are meek are the ones who have sought the way of being meek by the way of wisdom. In the Old Testament, wisdom and meekness were associated together. You can look at James chapter 3, wisdom and being meek. Those who have been battle tested, those who have done emotional work, spiritual work, physical work, those who have found their way in the world by not dominating others, but by being gentle and kind and leading others, Jesus says they will inherit the earth, right? They'll have an inheritance. They will possess the land of heaven now and in the life to come. And another great thing that the moral theologians point out is that part of possessing the land when you're meek is the gift of being able to possess your own self. You know, we a lot of our power issues and stuff like that come from trying to possess ourselves and we just can't seem to get on top of it. So being meek in the world is a way of possessing the land of ourselves. The invitation, blessed are the meek. We've been invited to be strong by learning the reality of forgiveness, to develop a courageous disposition that can bring order to chaotic and violent environments. You know, you know meek people. Right? They're the people in the room that when the meeting's out of hand and people are throwing stuff and screaming at each other, they're the one that can walk in and put their hand on the table and say, now let's just calm down a second. Let's think about this. Now you know these people who have the gift, who are meek, who have done the work to be meek in the world. And think about Jesus. You know, And one of the things I think that illustrates Jesus' meekness the most is when he went into the temple and he drove the money changers out of the temple, illustrating some righteous anger there. But Jesus was meek enough to be able to go into a place and exercise his anger in a way that was healthy and constructive and that stood up for the people that were getting trodden down. Another time I think in the life of Jesus uh, that I see meekness, remember the story in John 8 about the woman who was caught in adultery and everybody's gathered around and they're ready to stone her to death and they're like, what are we going to do with her? What are we going to do with her? We caught her in the very act of adultery and Jesus walks over and he kneels down and he starts writing something in the dirt. And people are just mesmerized, you know, and he goes on to say, hey, let the one of you guys without sin to cast the first stone. And he just totally diffuses the whole thing and brings people to a different way of seeing this poor and vulnerable person who's been caught in a downhill cycle. Jesus knew how to do that. And I think about these beatitudes, the, the meekness in that sense, like that's what I want to sign up for. I want to be that guy in the world. I want to be have the ability to be strong enough by learning strength the right way 
for you can go into a violent, chaotic environment and bring life and peace into that chaos. Finally, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This one strikes me as probably the most contradictory to common sense, uh, which is hard for me, hard for us. Um, We hosted a funeral yesterday uh, for a five-year-old girl. And Jesus said in Isaiah 61 that part of the reason that he came was to comfort those who mourn. To comfort those who mourn. I think the affirmation here is that when there's nothing left to hold on to, Christ identifies with you and he knows exactly how you feel. And the invitation, blessed are those who mourn, is to actively mourn. You know, to not shy away from sadness and grief, but be a friend to those who mourn. Feed them, uh, dry their tears, sit with them, pray for them when they don't have the energy and strength to pray for themselves. We see this very often in the life of Christ, that Jesus knew how to mourn. He knew how to be sad uh, when his good friend and co-worker and family member John the Baptist died. He was mourning. He was grieving actively. Jesus knew how to cry out in anguish for the things that didn't happen the way that he hoped they would. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, like I, how I've longed for you to gather you up like a hen gathers up her chickens and you just wouldn't have it. You know, you, you killed the prophets before me and now you're wanting to kill me. It's a cry of lament. And it comes full circle when Jesus shares with his disciples as he's his last days on earth. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you in John 16, 20, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. It goes on to talk about how the Holy Spirit would actually be called the Comforter, that we would know God's presence within us, even after Jesus was gone from this earth, because the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would live within us. And so the final invitation is simply to unite our pain with Christ's, uh, to be comforted in that way, to unite our pain with Christ, because suffering is the most universal thing for humans. And so Jesus didn't bypass that way when he came for our redemption, but he went straight into the worst part of it and suffered and was beaten, and was crucified. And therefore we have been given a way to be in the world that is healed and whole through his broken sacrifice for us. And so we share in this Holy Communion together. And uh, it's a joy to remind us 
that Christ has invited us to his table. 